Paleo Runner Podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click Radiance and Reviews. Paleo Runner is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. You can get the book from today's guest, Christopher Lane. Go to Paleo paleorunner.org and click audible at the top of the page for your free audiobook download. If you're listening through the podcast app for iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Christopher Lane. Christopher is professor of intellectual history at Northwestern University and author of the book Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness. Christopher, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thanks so much for having me on, Aaron. So the topic of our conversation today is your book, Shyness, and how normal, normal behavior became seen as a sickness. How did you get interested in the topic of, of shyness? Well, it, it started really from a book I'd written before on antisocial behavior in the 19th century. And I was really interested in that book in the way that misanthropy in particular, that is hatred of humanity, changed from being something that the romantics really admired to being something the Victorians were really afraid of and went to great lengths to pathologize. When I saw that social anxiety disorder had been added to the third edition of the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, I was sort of really intrigued. Um, The first definition was called social phobia, and it just sounded so strange and peculiar that I really wanted to find out not just um, why it was there, but how it had um, been added. And so I basically pestered the American Psychiatric Association for weeks, asking to see their papers, because uh, it's actually very difficult to get inside um, their archive. Um, They're very protective of the correspondence and so on. But um, it it turned out that my persistence paid off and they let me in. And then what I discovered was absolutely incredible. And so I, of course, wanted to write a whole history about um, the various editions to that third edition, because it was an incredibly important edition. It's described as a watershed for American psychiatry and for very reason. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting how you first got started is you actually went into, it sounds like, the archives and started researching for yourself. What what year was that happening? Well, um, the the changes to the to the manual were made in 1980, um, but I, I didn't get to them until um, the, the probably 1996-97 is when I started looking at it. Um, and it, as I say, it was, all, it was all owing to this previous book that had sort of fired up my interest in the topic. Um, but the focus on shyness really came from um, the, 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 the concept itself from social phobia, because what happened was that with each um, subsequent edition of the DSM, basically the threshold for the illness got lower and lower until more and more people were being included to the point where with the fourth edition that came out in 1994, they had to add a warning saying, look, clinicians should not confuse this disorder with shyness because the two, according to them, were distinct. The mm-hmm. problem was that they they added all of these symptoms, including 
being ludicrously fear of eating alone in a restaurant, avoidance of public restrooms. And actually in that, in that fourth edition, they added um, for children um, concerns about freezing and performing in public, which mm. I think if you, you, obviously if you know children, I mean, which child in a sense is not concerned about that. So they, they opened the floodgates and then added this warning, which really set me off to, to say, you know, this has to be the sign that something complex is going on here. Yeah. So it sounds like more and more just everyday fears are being categorized as illnesses or sicknesses. And what would be the reason for that? Is there an advantage for clinicians to be able to diagnose someone with a disease? Yeah, well, it's a it's a very good question. I mean, there there's enormous pressure both to add new behaviors to the DSM and to lower the thresholds by adding more and more criteria to the existing ones. Basically, what happens is um, the academic researchers who are very much dependent on the drug companies for pharmaceutical funding in order to keep their, their trials going and so on, are forced to exaggerate the conditions that they study. Mm-hmm. You don't often see, you know, academic psychiatrists saying, "Oh, I'm just studying a really small and, and minor problem that affects just a small percentage of people." They get more money and, and obviously more publicity and more interest and dollars if they can say, "Look, um, potentially this could affect up to one in five Americans," and this is exactly what happened. So something that began as a relatively rare phenomenon in their language, suddenly expanded by the year uh, 2000 to being the third most diagnosed mental disorder in the U.S. after um, depression and alcohol dependence. And, and so this, this, this disorder had basically gone from nothing, or more or less nothing in 1980, to uh, you know, uh, the third most prevalent condition. And I, I just found that extraordinary. But as I looked more and more into what had happened, including all of the changes to the DSM, you had the, the the revised third edition came out in eighty seven, then the fourth edition in ninety four. Basically, they th- they set the bar so low that almost anyone could trip over it. Mm-hmm. Is my conclusion, and, and I find that really concerning because this is just one of um, some more than eighty disorders that they added to that third edition, including avoidant personality disorder, where they'd had discussions about that based on on whether prefer you know people preferred commuting to work by car or by public transportation. Since so that, when you think of you know how many people in the states don't even have access to public transportation so you know it, it's just a non-starter yeah but but they, they were there were equally ludicrous discussions um, around um, some of the other disorders that, that came in to the point where one of them came forward 14 years later and said look to the New Yorker the research much of much of the research that we did was really a hodgepodge he said scattered inconsistent and ambiguous and that was basically my my feeling reading that correspondence some of those people were resigned because they said they had an Alice in Wonderland feeling about what was going on. And they would have these meetings supposedly to discuss these psychiatric conditions these on, based on scientific research, and people would be shouting over each other. And Robert Spitzer, who was editing the, the manual, had this sort of little um, hand typewriter and would bang out pr- criteria for these new disorders as people 
were speaking, you know, more or less within minutes, mm. and then would revise them according to his own whim, you know, based 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 on his own sentiment of of what should exist and and should not in 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 this very powerful list of mental disorders. This is, after all, a manual um, that's invoked in courts every day, in schools, in in the prison system, as well as obviously in in consulting rooms and among health insurers because they're deciding whether to reimburse for treatment. But it's one thing to 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 say we're being descriptive about this behavior. It's quite another to realize that the document is highly prescriptive. It's it's basically setting the bar as to where um, a mental disorder begins and and um, normal behavior ends. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you're adding more and more of these symptoms or criteria, such as fear of eating alone in a restaurant, in a psychiatric manual, you're going to get a, a huge number of false positives, basically of of diagnoses where people will likely end up with a treatment they simply don't need and that's hugely problematic when it's pharmaceuticals that are very potent and and basically riddled with side effects right right so you know skeptics of your book would might say the reason that people are being more and more diagnosed with illness illnesses such as shyness and anxiety is mm-hmm. because we're getting better at diagnosing these and it's all due to brain chemistry we do the studies we look at the brain chemistry and if you you have a headache you take aspirin if you're shy you take paxil it, what's wrong with that story well what's wrong with that story i mean <laughs> um the, but the, the first thing is that the, 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 the studies do exist and um they're worth taking seriously but there's always a sort of active interpretation going on in terms of where they set the cutoff points where they set the parameters I mean there was one famous case where they did a a trial based on random calls to urban Canadians and they determined this was a a hugely influential article in the American Journal of Psychiatry they determined that the cutoff point could be anywhere from 1.8% to over 18% which Mm. was just a huge um, divide but the second thing is about uh, brain chemistry and it's a big topic and a complex one um, but fundamentally this this metaphor of the, of the chemical imbalance has been widely widely discredited as, um, as simply an inadequate way of thinking about what's going on in the brain I mean for the, for uh, you know for the one thing is you know the difficulty of determining what causes anxiety whether states in the brain uh, are causing it or whether um, in fact there are triggers in the mind that then end up influencing the brain in terms of the amount of serotonin and so on that it retains. But the second thing is there's no causal relationship between the amount of serotonin that we have in our brains, for instance, and the amount of anxiety that we feel. So there, there can be people with high levels of serotonin who have um, high levels of anxiety and, and, and so on and so forth. It just There's no precise correlation, which is a, is a, a big problem. But obviously, a a straightforward metaphor like that has a lot of power in people because they think, okay, it's my brain that needs fixing. This is a a simple problem to do with dopamine or serotonin or something beyond my control that a pill can fix. And that lulls you into the idea that the pill then will take care of pretty much everything. Um, Unfortunately, as we know, you know, they had to add a black box warning 
um, to these drugs in 2004 because of the prevalence rates of, of suicide, of, of the amount of, quote, suicide ideation that people were feeling, um, which is obsess obsessing about taking their lives. Um, you know, when, when, when you imagine that people are facing that risk and numerous others from these drugs simply um, because they're feeling low levels of social anxiety, as a number of people, a large number of people on the drugs um, uh, do feel, uh, it's, it's, you've got a very big kind of disconnect going on there in terms of the risks that they're taking and opening themselves to. Mm -hmm. So you alluded to a lot of the side effects there and that there's still a lot unknown and that this story of chemistry in the brain causing mm -hmm. uh, psychiatric disorders isn't really well understood. Would mm -hmm. your skeptics agree with you that the theory of serotonin is pretty much not used anymore? Or are there still some people who cling to that? I mean, I'm talking about scientists and doctors. Yeah, there are very few scientists now who would um, go to bat with that claim. They, they would still say that serotonin, norepinephrine, another, uh, another messenger in the brain and dopamine are involved, but they don't know in, in, in what precise ways. So the kind of the argument about the chemical imbalance has basically disappeared. What's happening, um, and it's and it's owing to far greater attention to the side effects of these medications, is that there's a, a sort of renewed interest in cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes in combination with, with pharmaceutical, often not, as a way of treating low-level, fairly straightforward forms of anxiety, including, say, fear of riding in an elevator or fear of riding in a car, fear of certain objects, and so on. For, for, um, for those fairly straightforward forms of anxiety, cognitive behavioral therapy is both low-cost is obviously free of those pharma pharmacological side effects, um, and it can be quite effective. But my argument in the book is that it, it, cognitive behavioral therapy really cannot get to grips with the forms of anxiety where people are simply unaware of the cause, and and you know it's it's not something that's going to surface and get resolved in five to ten treatments, for instance. It's far more difficult, and anxiety in general is is quite a riddle for psychiatry and for psychology and psychoanalysis. It's, it's often described as that because it's sort of on the cusp between biology and culture or society. Mm -hmm. And the triggers can be, can be quite obvious and they can be very opaque and unclear to, unclear to the person in question. Are there some people that these drugs do work for? And, and how effective, at the same time, how effective is cognitive behavioral therapy? Well, um, there, there is a very small number of people for, for, for whom the drugs are effective and I don't want to minimize that. But uh, uh, in terms of the, the meta-studies that have been done, the, uh, the drugs barely outperform placebo in terms of their full efficacy. So you've got, you've got a situation, um, particularly with, with mild cases of, uh, and mild to half, you know, non-chronic cases of anxiety, where um, the, the, a drug treatment will probably do more harm than good um, insofar as it it's just it's not able to get above that bar with placebo. Mm -hmm. With the more chronic cases, um, the, the the drugs are shown to have a, a higher range of efficacy. But once again, they're accompanied by this litany 
litany of side effects. And, you know, another big one that we didn't talk about was sexual dysfunction, that a very large number of people complain of, um, of sexual dysfunctions when taking SSRI, antidepressants, and antipsychotics. And it's in part because the, the, the drug is sending to the brain a kind of satiation signal um, whereby people just simply lose interest in sex. And then they get depressed as a result of that. Um, and then the whole cycle begins in, in a different form. And it's owing to the drugs itself rather than any condition pre-existing them. So that's, that's, that's a very serious problem. In terms of CBT and its effectiveness, as I said, it's, it's, it's really quite effective for, um, for simple targeted anxieties that, that people are very clear about and that they can address in, in a short number of sessions. But it's, can, it's, it's, it's far less effective with complex forms of anxiety, whether people, for instance, suffer a form of generalized anxiety, but they can't, they can't at all put their finger on why, what's, okay. what's setting them off, what their trigger is. Mm. Well, there seems to be an allure to the drugs in that we like to think that we have everything figured out about the human body and the brain, and we like to trust doctors. It makes us feel good. But I think what you're saying is that there, there's a lot of unintended consequences that could be a result, and there's still a lot that we don't know. Is that sound That's like your basic argument? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. There's a huge mm -hmm. amount about about the brain and particularly the mind still that we know so little about. It, it's uh, unfortunately this has been a case of, of the car before the horse, particularly with the Prozac phenomenon from really the the late 80s all the way through the 90s. There was so much premature buzz around these drugs as a, a kind of phenomenon in themselves. I mean, there was a lot of irresponsible journalism, to be honest, as well, with cover stories on Newsweek and Time, for instance, talking about personality sculpting and how people might be taking and, sh and could be taking these drugs quite feasibly just to um, adjust various quirks of their personality because they felt it. They felt like a little bit of mood brightening and so on. It was like taking a cocktail. I mean, and, and then when you consider how serious the the, the, the medication is. And how quickly we've adjusted our expectations to make them um, appear necessary treatments for all kinds of behavioral problems in children, down to age two, uh, sometimes even less. Really? It's absolutely extraordinary. These drugs have not been tested formally on children, in part because parents, understandably, are so nervous about the prospect of, 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 of that in a clinical trial of an unknown that they say, of course not. But when a, when a um, when a when a uh, pediatrician or psychiatrist prescribes them off label, uh, as happens very frequently these days, and to increasingly younger um, uh, 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 groups of, of children, down to infants and toddlers, you know we're 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 really we're really taking a very serious leap in the dark, I think. And, and we also know um, enough about those, those antipsychotics to say they can lead to very rapid weight gain in children. Um, they lead to hypoglycemia, to diabetes, to a shortened life expectancy. And, and fundamentally, the whole premise of giving them to a young child is this completely unproven scientific claim that you're going to stamp out the problem while it's still in, you know, in the bud form, as it, as it were, as opposed to burgeoning later in life. Every, every scientific investigation they've done into those claims has, has backfired. They cannot make that kind of causal leap. 
Um, of course, we don't know whether a childhood trait is going to disappear as as uh, in maturation or whether it's going to remain. But certainly, there's no there's no um, there's no ability to prove that giving a young toddler a powerful antipsychotic is going to mean that they don't exhibit bipolar traits later in life. So, but in, instead, you know, we're 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 taking this very serious risk with um, very large numbers of children. Now, I find that really concerning as a teacher. Uh, I, you know, these, this is in terms of the next generation and the kinds of problems that we're going to face. Um, this is just the beginning, and it's it's really alarming to me. Yeah, it's it's one thing if an adult wants to is dealing with anxiety and they want to try to do something about it, but when a small child is subjected to that uh, in these kind of drugs that have some unknown side effects and even some known harmful mm-hmm. ones like suicide ideation, I think is one of them, and yep, that's absolutely. pretty scary stuff. Absolutely, it is, and and you know the 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 child is obviously completely unaware of the medical consequences of what they're being given and the parents are put in a position nine times out of ten where they're trusting a pediatrician who may or may know may or may not know what they're doing um but often this this balloons so the child starts developing tics facial muscular tics for instance um uh, which is a known consequence uh, known another known side effect of the antipsychotics and so they're given a drug regimen to to take that you know to to try and to solve that problem which then has unintended consequences in terms of maybe sleep patterns so they have to take uh, a tranquilizer or something to help them sleep at night which makes them groggy in the morning so they need an upper or something to get them going in the morning to make them ready for school and and very quickly these whole these this situation can balloon out of control so a child is on something like you know six or seven drug regimens whose interaction again is not precisely known and um, I have to add the whole reason we pushed from you know we've moved as in, in terms of a cycle from these SSRI antidepressants to um, antipsychotics is largely because of the patent cycle I hate to sound cynical but you know basically when the patent cycle for the SSRIs ended the drug companies no longer earned major revenues as they had in throughout the 90s, blockbuster revenues, billions of dollars, um, those revenues um, fell very quickly. And what happened was it was a very big marketing campaign to basically bundle depression with bipolar disorder to say, if you think uh, depression is, is, you know, you, you may have additional consequences, there may be additional side to this. Have you thought about taking these two drugs in combination? Mm. And very quickly, what happened was, was um, the antipsychotic got pushed in major marketing campaigns, hundreds of millions of dollars thrown at them. They were all on patent at the time, which meant that they picked up the revenue that the drug companies were losing to Me Too copies or variants of the of the SSRIs. And and what happened was just simply it's a you know a patent cycle in uh, in in the drug regimens, which is which is really disturbing. You think about the public health consequences. So you mentioned there that there's drug companies who are behind the scenes that might be pushing these drugs uh, more than they should be. What about the role of the doctor? I mean, we often have this idea of a doctor as being someone who's an impartial medical opinion. Why does it seem that they're so eager sometimes to go along with uh, giving these drugs to young people or even people who? 
are dealing with mild forms of anxiety? Well, it's a great question, and it's and it's a complex one, and there are all kinds of side, uh, you know, elements to it. One is that the, you know, if you go to your doctor's office, chances are you will see um, one or two pharma reps swing by just on the off chance that their sample, their stock of samples has fallen, and they might need replacing. This was something. I mean, it's it's you know, since we brought more and more attention to it, it it it, it seems to be waning slightly. But the but the doctors themselves are under huge pressure from these pharma reps to give free samples to the um, patient as a way of, of, of sort of beginning a treatment informally. And the doctor will say, you know, I have maybe one patient who seems to be doing okay with this, one who reported sort of these kinds of effects. Try it out, see if it works for you. If it doesn't, you know, we'll, we'll switch it over and, 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 and opt for something else. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's going on is that parents, for their side, are, are associating a pill or a drug regimen with something that they can latch onto in terms of producing results. Mm-hmm. So in Instead of saying, okay, maybe we need to rethink um, how much caffeinated drink our son or daughter is taking um, before breakfast, for instance, or how much exercise they're truly getting, or how many, how many hours they're spending on, on you know, video games and so on that are hyping them up and, and so forth. Instead of, of, of really looking at issues like that, we tend to say, well, let, let's let's look at a drug regimen that can tackle this problem or seems to be able to. Um, and and we'll we'll just throw we'll just throw the medicine at, at the issue and and imagine that that will take care of it. And and the problem is as I said, you know, that can lead to all of these knock-on effects, unintended consequences that that then mean very quickly that a that, that a child starts to to take more and more of these regimens. So I think it, it, it's sort of, it's a number of factors um, working around that. But, it, but it's also very much a, a cultural problem. It's been with us basically since the 50s, particularly in the States, this assumption that um, pharmacology is a very efficient, targeted way of addressing medical issues. And, and it can be. Um, and there are medicines out there that keep people alive. And I'm deeply impressed by, by both that fact and the amount of research that's that's gone into those medications and, and the responsibility attached to it. But there are also, particularly for psychiatric situations, there are a whole litany of drugs out there that are completely inadequate to the problems and um, that are often making the situation worse. And in situations like that, we, we need to have a major rethink about um, the treatment options available. But basically, what's happened is that, that where, where we used to have, where we used to think about uh, a large range of possible um, solutions. Now, for nine times out of ten, it seems to shrink to to um, medication, and and that's the default, and and that's deeply upsetting and problematic just because of these side effects. Yeah. Now, you you know, I'd like to turn to the topic of authenticity and living life and mm-hmm. that this idea that maybe some anxiety is okay and and not anxiety all anxiety or or things like introversion is bad mm-hmm. um what what do you see as the role for anxiety in humans and can it be a, something that can help us well i when i when i wrote the book i was very impressed by darwin's anxiety uh, excuse me darwin's interest in anxiety um insofar as he um he looked at the various forms of, of social anxiety and embarrassment that people can experience, including simply why people blush. There's a, there's a whole discussion in Darwin as to what
what role a blush serves in terms of sort of uh, heightened heightened coloration and um, and what it's signaling in in any kind of evolutionary terms. Um, I, I am uh, very much of the of, of the of a kind of similar mindset that anxiety in low forms is actually important for us as a species. Obviously, it alerts us to danger as to risk. There's a a, a quite a, a an impressive amount of literature um, saying, for instance, that the Wall Street crash may well have occurred because of people a either taking too many um, non-prescriptive drugs, which is to say cocaine, uh, while they trading, which blinds them to risk, but also SSRIs, which also interrupt the feedback loop that, that, that people would receive in terms of um, the danger of being lulled into a false sense of security with mortgage securities, with subprime, and so on. I mean, that's a, that's that's obviously quite speculative still. Mm-hmm. Although I think you know, I, I, I do think it's an important topic, and it's one deserving of further research. Mm-hmm. But in in general, um, a certain level of anxiety is necessary for us as a species, um, as as a set of warning signals, both both internally, psychologically. In terms of where we are with our stress, uh, how much stress we can handle, um, but also as a species, in terms of alerting us to environmental risks that that we might not always um, notice otherwise. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to ask you about building character and how maybe working so- through some of these um, so-called illnesses could help a person. Do you see, I mean, if you have a, say you had a headache and you take aspirin, you, you there's obviously no compunction about that. But what about some of these things that are more personal to humans, like, uh, you know, their mental states? Is there a role for building character in working through these issues? I I definitely think there 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 is a role for expanding the kinds of treatments that we bring to these issues. Yes, I mean I, the reason I'm a little tentative there is that this can flip very quickly into a claim that um, one is sort of prizing suffering and in, and and in, in one sense sort of urging people to suffer more. And I'm I'm very uh, careful not to. To, not to state that because I think there are all kinds of risks involved. Um, but I do think in general that um, if we had a, a more expansive sense of the way we could treat these conditions, that it's not that the pharmacology drug regimens are not always the answer and are frequently part of the problem and intensifying of the problem, um, we can better think about what are the causes of, uh, what are the triggers of these anxieties and, and forms of depression and and what are the ways of lifting them um there are a huge number of studies uh, i don't want to sound like tom cruise here but simply scientifically pointing to the benefits of exercise in terms of increased endorphins in terms of raised circulation in terms of the brain getting more oxygen to the blood from the blood and so on um, these are scientifically proven ways of saying this this, this can also lift mood this can also help people regain perspective. Um, one of one, you know, I, I'm also personally very much drawn to a healthy diet that um, and a balanced one that takes out so many of the chemicals, the preservatives that people unthinkingly uh, often imbibe through fast food, um, through through microwave food, and so on. And uh, I, 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 although it can be more expensive, it doesn't have to be if if enough thought is. is 
is is sort of spent on it. But uh, someone who also had um, spent a long time with martial arts. Um, this is this is something that I, I can I would testify myself to in terms of sort of increased increased mood, increased um, self confidence, um, better perspective, um, better respect for others. Great thing in children. Um, this is the, the, you know very impressed by the effect of martial arts, uh, for instance, on young children in terms of being able to cope with both stress and also opposition and learning ways to kind of channel it in appropriate in forums. So, but, but I would also add to all of this, of course, talk therapy and um, psychodynamic treatments that don't involve medication, mm. but that do take the mind seriously in terms of understanding that there are often frequently enigmatic causes to depression and anxiety, including the risks that are in the world. The fact that those seem to intensify at certain points, including now, means that we have to be more mindful of the alternative options rather than insisting that that medication is always the best way. I have to ask you about diet there because a lot of the guests I've had on the show do talk about diet and mm -hmm. I've noticed personally for myself over the past year that I've cleaned up my diet that my moods just during the day are a lot more stable. Is that? Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen with diet? Is that something you've personally experienced or you've seen in the literature? It definitely is. I mean, I, I personally decided to cut out meat from my diet um, from about um, 25 years ago and it was something that I that I broke only once um, by accident in Indianapolis Airport <laughs> purely by accident what I found when I when I took meat out of my diet was actually a, a, a greatly increased amount of energy it really surprised me it really stunned me and so I sort of built from there in terms of having proteins that available that would that that would help me in terms of energy sustain me throughout the day allow me to enjoy exercise vigorous exercise in fitness including martial arts as i said and as i spent more and more time traveling including in south america i blogged about this too just the difference in emphasis that other cultures can bring to food as an element not just of, of well-being but also of sociability and 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 so on I actually blogged about natural aphrodisiacs, in, for instance, that are used in Peru, Brazil, and Colombia that are widely available there that would help um, a large segment of the male population off Viagra insofar as Viagra carries enormous risks with, with sight and with hearing. This is now scientifically known, and yet these drugs sort of persist. People experiment with them. People think that they're the solution. There are so many natural alternatives that are widely available. Uh, including on the web, but but also in stores that that have the exact same function, and that people joke about all over South America, and yet our cultural understanding of them in in this country is, I think, quite impoverished, and that kind of bothers me because I think, what are we missing out on that that other people know about, and why is our tradition sort of neglecting this knowledge when we pride ourselves on being so advanced in other ways, including through science? There is a science to this. There is a science to the way these 
these elements work. And so it's it's not quirky, it's not esoteric. It's something I think that that we need to take far more seriously than we do. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you started out with with this issue of shyness and mental disorders, and it kind of led you down a different path of of way of looking at things, and that there are other options out there for a lot of different things, and not just mental disorders, but diet, health, and and even Viagra, I guess. <laughs> absolutely. So, or, or an antidote to. to yeah. Um, absolutely. So, I mean, I think this is this is one consequence of blo- uh, blogging for Psychology Today about an array of issues to do with mental health, but also um, way beyond it in terms of well-being. Um, there's something about the forum in Psychology Today that encourages that kind of uh, attentiveness and expansiveness. So, you know, I, I my, my prime topic is obviously um, psychiatry and pharmacology, and I monitor particularly media stories about both very vigorously in the U.S. and also European and U.K. presses. So um, I, I feel like that's my, my, my primary responsibility, and it's a big one in terms of getting the story right, reporting correctly on the data, um, being balanced in terms of representing um, possible advantages, um, and, and, and including to a greater transparency that's coming in among European pharmaceuticals, which I'm, I'm actually very much be- behind. I'm very much behind people having uh, reliable data that they can um, that they can use to make informed decisions for a whole array of drugs, not just simply psychiatric ones. But I'm also, as, as you know, in terms of the blogging, yes, indeed, I'm 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 very much behind. Uh, encouraging uh, Americans to think about alternative and healthful and often really delicious alternatives in terms of food to the, the, the kinds of uh, habits and so on that we that we're often sort of repeat unthinkingly. Mm-hmm. I do think it's good to expand one's horizons in, in that regard and to have a, a, a sort of more holistic and expanded understanding of health and well-being, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm really curious about uh, different people's diets and, and what they decide, what, what they like, what they think is the healthiest diet. And uh-huh. I'd like to know a little bit about what you eat on a daily basis since you since you brought it up if you don't mind sharing with the listeners because okay. you're on a meatless diet how do you go about getting your protein and your healthy fats and things like that uh proteins through fish uh, so i do eat fish i'm a, a pescatarian fish mm-hmm. and seafood is a big uh, side of that diet and um uh, actually my day begins with a with a uh, a shake that includes uh three different kinds of berry um, that you can buy frozen from stores like Costco um, quite inexpensively, um, mixed with OJ and a banana and uh, a Peruvian, um, a root that's powdered called maca, which is very good for well-being. And another Peruvian is kind of treacle that goes in their, in their smoothies. It's basically a smoothie called algarabina, which you can buy off the web. Again, f- packed pack with minerals and other healthful elements. And that is a really sustaining amount of energy for the day. But I have I have my cheese, my vegetable sandwiches, and I have soups, lots of fish, lots of steamed vegetables like broccoli. And I really I am someone who really enjoys varied salads, all different kinds of vinaigrettes and so on. Maybe the vinaigrettes aren't completely healthy, but I make them myself with with olive oil and balsamic vinegar and mustard, and it can make a, a an ordinary salad really delicious. But one simple thing, I, I, I mean, a tip that I would recommend, 
uh, a spinach smoothie with banana is, is incredibly delicious and healthful. And, and when you liquidize the spinach, it makes it sweet. Mm. It's one of the nicest ways to take what we know to be an element that's absolutely packed with iron and antioxidants and just incredible number of, uh, of good elements and vitamins. So that's an interesting way of taking spinach. Just mix it with a little bit of water and then fill the, fill the liquidizer with, with, with the spinach leaves and a banana. Mm-hmm. And the and that the banana offsets and and the liquidize liquidizer offsets the bitterness of the of the spinach to make it sweet. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, that's actually something that I often do. I, I actually add coconut milk to my smoothies. And excellent, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And Colombians love cooking fish with coconut um, coconut milk. It's a, and and including rice as well. That's an alternative, particularly on the um, Atlantic coast. The Caribbean um, variant is is to cook rice in coconut milk to make it more interesting. Mm. Well, Christopher, you know, we've talked about a lot of different issues here, about certainly about shyness, but then all, moving all the way to diet. How about some practical advice for parents or people dealing with loved ones who might be suffering from shyness or anxiety? What what do you do you have any advice for them on whether recommending whether to go to a doctor or whether uh, working it out on their own? Yeah, I do. Uh, the book that I would recommend for them is by Philip Zimbardo and it's called The Shy Child. And it's an, an older book. It's probably just available now in, in uh, used copies. Um, it's, a, it's a book that was published before the uh, Prozac, uh, Zoloft, Paxil craze in, in the late 80s. And so it literally makes no reference whatsoever to, to drugs, which is itself quite an eye-opener and and amazing to think that today um you know reading a book like that um one one could publish a book with without any reference to um to pharmacology concerning social anxiety or shyness um what he what he has in the book are a series of really humane um very quite obvious in some respects but but still you know um things that that people may not think of in terms of uh Asking questions to a child, um, drawing them out in terms of what 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 they would enjoy doing, asking questions about their experiences and so on, making them more familiar in turn uh, about the kinds of things that give them pleasure, and the ways that that uh, confidence can be built um, that will that can help surpass these these problems of anxiety. And there's also uh, there's an array of organisations out there, especially ones like Toastmaster that are incredibly good for professionals who need to give public presentations. But like most of us sort of absolutely hate speaking in public in front of their colleagues and so on because of professional concern, because of concern about being judged uh, and so on. These are organizations where everyone's in the same boat and they don't cost money. Um, and you can go along and just get feedback for anything from, from sort of a kind of career development to a particular concern, like standing up and giving a really funny, good speech at a wedding, for instance. People are terrified of doing such things. So uh, instead of, you know, obsessing about the, the, the pharmacology to it, I would, I, I definitely recommend these kinds of uh uh, opportunities, these groups, and this kind of literature, particularly for children, insofar as shyness is so common among children, it's it's in the region of fifty percent.
and 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 that uh, incredibly that that number, although it does include introverts as well, and there is some category confusion between the two um, in the culture and in the research. The, the 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 number stays static more or less throughout university life. There is a there is a, a, a tipping point around doctoral degrees, but actually. In terms of some research, more male undergraduates report experiencing shyness than do female undergraduates. And that's really quite an eye-opener. And, you know, it sort of tells us there might be a major disconnect between the way uh, people are thought to behave and the way, you know, they, they think they should and the way they actually feel internally concerning those roles and, and expectations and so forth. Great. Well, Christopher, it's been a very interesting conversation speaking with you today, and I'm sure you've given our listeners a lot to think about. So thanks so much for being part of the show. Thanks so much, Aaron. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.